0: Chapter Sixteen of Life of Dorothea Lind Dix by Frances Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen The Twelve Million Two Hundred and Twenty Five Thousand Acre Bill, Sessions Eighteen Fifty to Fifty One. At the outset of the session of eighteen fifty, miss dix for the second time memorialized congress in behalf of the indigent insane of the united states as well as of the indigent blind and deaf and dumb the tonic of opposition had acted with its usual invigorating effect and she now came forward not as before with a bill for five million acres of the public domain but with a bill for twelve million two hundred and twenty five thousand acres, of which ten million should inure to the benefit of the insane, two million two hundred and twenty five thousand to that of the blind and deaf and dumb. A favorable report on the memorial was at once made, and every prospect looked promising of its speedy successful passage from the press, and from enlightened public sentiment all over the land, came strong endorsements of the measure. Likewise, at the annual conference of the Medical Superintendents of American Institutions for the Insane, the following vote was unanimously passed. Resolved, that this association regards with deep interest the progress of the magnificent project which has been and continues to be urged by miss d l Dix on the consideration of congress proposing the grant of a portion of the public domain by the federal government the proceeds of which are to be devoted to the endowment of the public charities throughout the country AND THAT IT MEETS WITH OUR UNQUALIFIED SANCTION. THOMAS S. KIRKBRIDE, SECRETARY. Once again was Miss Dix in her old place in the alcove of the Capitol Library. With her the day always began at four or five o'clock in the morning, when, on rising, she sacredly set apart the first hour for her religious devotions. In the most hurried time of work or travel, she would never intermit this habit, feeling that when, frayed in spirit through pressure of care, the virtue had gone out of her, she must faint and utterly fall but for refuge in this mount of prayer god was her present help in time of trouble rarely speaking of her personal religious feelings except in confidential hours religion was yet the breath of her life passionately fond of hymns and with a memory stored with them from the early latin hymns of the church and onward through those of bernard of cluny in the middle ages and the rich stores of the German mystics and later Moravians, to the hymns of Wesley, Faber, Whittier, and Bowering in more recent days, she rose on their wings into a realm of peace and thanksgiving, in which, for the time at least, all the struggle and sorrow of earth were hushed. Her hour, however, of devotion over— the late kneeling and dependent woman was forthwith another being once again the sense of naked moral responsibility had taken exclusive possession of her and every nerve of action was on the stretch ill or well in pain or in temporary relief from pain on herself alone she felt it to depend whether a vast cry of misery should continue to rise and beat in vain, against a brazen vault, or be heard and answered, comforted and stilled. By the hour of breakfast, at eight o'clock, she had dispatched the daily stint of her immense correspondence, now embracing the needs and problems of asylums in twenty states, and ten o'clock saw her seated in her chair in the alcove there for four or five hours on the stretch often through the intolerable heats of a july or august session would she patiently reason with instruct and entreat the members brought in to see her she was at this period of life forty-eight years old although her rich brown hair showed scarcely a line of white, and her blue-gray eyes, so large and dilating in the pupils as often to be mistaken for black, retained all their range of expression, from lightning-swift decision to tender compassion. Patience and a sweet conciliatory spirit were now the needful weapons of a nature constitutionally high-strung, and imperious. Infinitely wearisome was it, this going over the same ground a thousand times, and replying to the same stereotyped objections. The head might throb, the old sharp pain in the chest might pierce, the heat of 95 to 100 degrees might threaten collapse of brain. Still, to give way for a moment, and suffer any irritability of physical fiber, any impatience of scorn at political subserviency to interrupt the even flow of persuasion and entreaty might be to make an enemy, not of herself, this was nothing, but of her sacred cause. Miss Dix had studied the art of cogent statement and vital appeal, as few orators study it. It was not by nature hers, except on the condition of the varied and often contradictory elements of her character becoming fused in the heat of a great idea. But in those days of impassioned activity she had mastered this art to a rare degree few ever recognized more clearly the power of a fit word than she. In her reading, she habitually noted down every telling phrase, till her vocabulary became full, exact, and varied. Besides, her life for now many years had been one long school of practice in dealing with every type of human character. Nonetheless, This sedulous cultivation of speech was, in her case, at the last remove from any trace of rhetorical display. Her nature was too intense, too forceful, too straightforward to admit for a moment of this. She studied language as the soldier grinds his sword to make it cut. Those who heard her on the rare occasions, except on Sundays in prisons, when she ever made an address of any length, on occasions, for example, when she would call together the attendants and nurses in a new asylum to speak to them about their sacred duties, say they never listened to such moving speech from human lips. Her auditory would be wrought to mingled tears and exultation as though in their merciful vocation the divine privilege of the very call of Jesus, to be eyes to the blind and feet to the lame, had descended to them from out of the heavens. And yet this was the same woman who, at times of weariness or self-concentration, would leave no other impression on many but that she was hard and unsympathetic the hot summer of the session of eighteen fifty was wearily wearing away but miss dix kept up heart and hope her bill had actually passed by a full majority the house of representatives the popular branch of which she stood in the greater fear as more sure to be affected by the immediate political passions of the day there was to be farther deliberation in the senate in this body however she felt sure of a victory unless in the press of business in the last days of the session her bill should be crowded out and so deferred as late in the season then as august twenty ninth eighteen fifty she is found replying to a friend begging her to seek change and recuperation in the more bracing air of the North, in a tone marked by the exhaustion under which she was suffering, but still full of her usual patience of resignation. None can tell what a mountain will be lifted from my breast if my bills pass. I shall feel almost as if I could say, lord let now thy servant depart in peace for mine eyes have seen thy salvation but i recollect that my times and seasons are his and for his work he will do as seems to himself good i ought to be ready to meet all changes all events but the troubles of the miserable world would if now no way were opened for their alleviation Make the hour of death mournful to me. End quote. Another fortnight of the hope deferred that maketh the heart sick, and at the close of the session she is forced to write to the same friend these few sad words quote, My bill is deferred to the first month of the next session, the second Monday. Pray that my patience do not fail utterly." Patience did not fail. Once again, the winter session of 1851 saw Miss Dix at her post. Delay succeeded delay in getting the bill called up, but at last, February eleventh, was penned the following letter to her friend Miss Heath how thrilling a picture it gives of what Miss Dix had herself characterized as the feverish spirit of the gambling-table, of a scene, rather, as it rose before her impassioned mind, in which the God of mercy and the power of darkness were playing for a stupendous stake of human succor or human misery. The letter is hastily dashed off at intervals, from her alcove in the Capitol Library. Washington, D.C., February 11th, 1851. My dear friend, my bill is up in the Senate, I awaiting the result with great anxiety, but a calmness which astonishes myself. A motion to lay on the speaker's table is just lost, 32 to 14. It is said that this is the test vote. They are speaking on amendments. The danger is from debate. I dread chase of Ohio. Mr. Mason of Virginia sends me word the bill will pass. A message from Mr. Pierce, who says the bill will, will pass. Ah, if it should fail now. Mr. Shields just comes to say the bill will pass. You know not how terrible the suspense. I am perfectly calm and as cold as ice. 4 p.m. The bill has passed the Senate beautifully. A large majority, more than two to one. Thirty-six yeas to sixteen nays. End quote a glorious victory gained in the Senate. At the last session she had achieved an equal one in the House of Representatives. But before a bill can become an act, it must pass both houses in the same session and be signed by the President. There remained, then, the action of the House of Representatives. What will that action be? It is the popular branch... Its term of office is shorter than that of the Senate. Its members are more sensitive to the temporary wind of the hour. Of the real convictions of a large majority of these members, there is no question. Will they be brave enough to act on them? Their proceedings are singularly vacillating and at cross-purposes. They are letting, I dare not, wait upon i would now the question of the immediate consideration of the bill is defeated by the rigid enforcement of the rules and now in turn twice are the rules suspended by a vote of the same house the first time by one hundred and five nays to fifty yeas the second by one hundred and eight to seventy The opportunity is thus again on hand, but still some subtle political fear is paralyzing action. Each time the house proceeds to other business. No, it dares not face the question. Delay is interposed on delay, till the session is well nigh over, and the bill will now probably lapse. Patient, travailing martyr. Gird up thy loins, and nerve thy indomitable spirit for a second cruel defeat. It came, and yet she never gave way to despair. End of chapter 16